0: Father, thank you that the words of that song are our life. If that wasn't true, we would be in massive trouble. We would be without hope, as the Apostle Paul says in this world. But that is not our story. You have set us free. And no matter what we're walking in here with this week, no matter how burdened we feel or how cast down we feel, the truth is what we just sang. We are your children. And with that, we have been given so much privilege, salvation, and joy, and everlasting life. Speak now through your servant as his sins are many to your people for the glory of your name and for the good of their soul. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, Gang. Go ahead and be seated. Welcome again to Epiphany. My name is My name's Eric. I'm the pastor here at Epiphany, and uh, so good to worship with you here tonight. Man, that was just refreshing to me to be able to, um, to dig into the Word like that. Uh, we are going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 20 tonight. We're continuing our series in Lent, uh, where we're basically looking at passages that deal with the reality of our sin, the reality of our struggles with sin, and what God has done about it. In some ways, this is not like an unusual theme, right? I mean, this is something that comes up over and over again in Scripture. But this season is set aside as we look forward to Resurrection Day, as we look forward to Easter, as a time where we say, man, this is why Jesus needed to come. This is why he needed to be here. And so uh, you can follow along with the words on our screen. I'll read them to you right now. Let me get out of the way so I can read them to you. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 20, actually. It says, And he began to tell the people... And the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he, Jesus, looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him." The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. End of reading. Well, if you ever read the Psalms at all, then you will notice that a pretty regular question Uh, slash lament uh, that comes up often in the Psalms sounds something like this. How long, O Lord, will you let the wicked get away with their wickedness? You see it all over the place. Why, O Lord, do the wicked seem to prosper? They cheat the system and yet somehow or another they get ahead. Why do nice guys finish last, O Lord, and the bad guys seem to get ahead? That's the question. You ever have those questions? You ever had a season in your life where it just seems like all the people that should not be getting ahead seem to be doing great? I'm pretty sure we all have at some point. I know I have. In the film Crimes and Misdemeanors, the main character, Judah Rosenthal, uh, murders his mistress played by Angelica Houston, I think. And through a series of events, the movie ends with him actually getting away with it. Sorry if I'm giving away the ending, but it's 30 years old. I, I mean, can't do anything. So the writer, the writer, Woody Allen, presents Judah at the end of the film thinking back on his actions and how it was he could go on living, knowing what he had done. And these are the thoughts he has about himself. I'm going to read this quote. Listen carefully. After the awful deed is done, He finds that he's plagued by deep-rooted guilt. Little sparks of his religious background, which he rejected, are suddenly stirred up. He hears his father's voice. He imagines that God is watching his every move. Suddenly, it's not an empty universe at all, but a just and moral one, and he's violated it. Now, he's panic-stricken. He's on the verge of a mental collapse an inch away from confessing the whole thing to the police. And then, one morning, he awakens. The sun is shining. His family is around him. And mysteriously, the crisis has lifted. He takes his family on a vacation to Europe. And as the months pass, he finds... He is not punished, not punished. In fact, he prospers. The killing gets attributed to another person, a drifter who has a number of other murders to his credit. Now, he's off scot-free. His life is completely back to normal, back to his protected world of wealth and privilege. End quote. What's Alan acknowledging? The wicked seem to get away with it, and even prosper. Or do they? Let's go to the parable, find the answer to the question. How does God deal with the wicked? How does God say, at least he's going to? Well, first, first of all, it's very clear from the passage, he very patiently sends representatives of himself to the wicked. I mean, now, before we go any further, to explain the parable again, it's important to point out a couple of details about this parable so that you can kind of have a frame of reference. First of all, almost everything in it is originally addressed to the people of Israel. Therefore, just about every character in this story represents something or someone in Israel's history found in the Old Testament. So when you hear of the master, that's representing God. When you hear about the vineyard... That's another name for Israel, or the people of God, all throughout the Old Testament. The wicked tenants are therefore Israel, the people of God's leadership, those who were put in charge of Israel, politicians, priests, scribes and Pharisees, etc. The servants that the master sends to get fruit from the people of Israel, from the vineyard, are in fact the prophets of the Old Testament, people that God had sent To share his word with the people. And then, of course, the son is Jesus himself. You may have picked that up, but just in case you didn't, that's what we got here. With that as a backdrop, let's see the first way that God handles the wicked. Look at verse 10 again. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, this would have been such an expected and common practice. I mean, this was normal. What any tenants would naturally do is give to the owner's servants what they are requesting. They would naturally heed the word of the owner's representative. So it's with some shock that the audience would have heard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. I mean, this is an outrageous display of greed violence and lawlessness. If this were any ordinary master of the time, one would expect to read in the next sentence that those tenants immediately faced great wrath and furious anger, to quote Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> but instead, we read this incomprehensible statement, the master sent another servant. But they also beat it and him treated him shamefully and sent... Him away empty-handed. And so you would expect then that the master would be like, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice. No, shame on you, whatever. One of those. And I'm not going to let you get away with it anymore and I'm coming down after you. I mean, this is of course what he'd do. But no, the story says, he sends yet another servant and they do the same thing, shockingly. How wicked could they be? master and his incredible patience does not justifiably come down on them for the rejection of his servants and yet they do the same thing again and again and again so this is obviously a a picture of Israel's leaders and what they did to the prophets that God sent them all throughout their history nearly every time God would send them someone to deliver his message and they would reject him they would scorn them They beat them, and oftentimes they would kill them. So Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, was thrown into a cistern and left for dead. Zechariah was stoned to death, and Isaiah was literally sawed in two, at least according to Jewish tradition. All because the wicked couldn't stand to hear the word of God that they were delivering. That is, after all, a hallmark of the wicked, an utter rejection of God's word. And yet, and yet, like the master in our story, God is endlessly patient with them. I mean, we're talking about, this is not just like a, a, a little period of time. This is thousands of years. Thousands of years. God sending people over and over and over and over. And every time, the people rejecting them, beating them, stoning them, killing them. So, how long, a Lord? How long are you going to be patient and let them get away with it? Are you coming now? It's been, I mean, you, 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 three servants. It's time. No, it's not. He's still patient because he then patiently sends his son. What shall I do? The, the logic of the owner here is crazy time in real life. In, like, in, in, in our life, this would be completely crazy to hear The logic of the owner is, well, they beat up my other three servants. I know what I'll do. I'll send, and notice he says, I'll send my beloved son to this group of wicked tenants, and that will do the trick. They'll respect him. And that's exactly what God does do. After thousands of years of continual rejection, the true master does send his son to the tenants of Israel, to the leadership of Israel. What happens? They reject him too. This is in the parable. So Matthew chapter 23, verses 37, a passage we've looked at here just a few weeks ago. What does Jesus say as he looks over Israel's capital? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how how I would have longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing so it says in the parable when the tenants saw the son they said to themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and have his inheritance now again the logic of the tenants here is nuts also like how are we going to get the inheritance from the dad kill his son makes no sense whatsoever But there is a craziness to sin in general that makes us think these kinds of things. And so, yes, they thought if we get rid of Jesus, if we get rid of the Son, then we can stay on the land. We can stay as tenants. We can stay in charge. The wicked want God's stuff. But they don't want Him. They want the gifts, but not... The giver. So imagine a brief scenario with me. Another parable without a parable, I guess. A man is passionately, deeply in love with his wife. So he decides to take her on the most extravagant trip imaginable. They take a cruise around Europe together. While on the trip, he showers her with jewelry, wonderful food, designer clothing. I mean, you name it. Whatever they dock, they stay at the finest hotels and eat at the nicest restaurants. Anything she wants, he buys her. On top of this, he tells her that when they're done with the trip, she will have a new car waiting for her in their driveway. To add the finishing touch, he lets her know that he has just emptied out his pension and put all the money in their checking account at home. And as they're about to come home, they're about to reach their destination port. She says, honey, I just want to let you know. I've never loved you. I've been cheating on you. And I don't want to see you ever again. And at that, she pushes him overboard and proceeds to watch him drown. Now, of course, that whole thing sounds absurd and outrageous. But that's the picture of what the wicked in this text do to the son. They want all the gifts. They don't want the giver. And so by this time, you're shouting somewhere in the back of your mind, how long, O oh Lord, do something about the wicked? And so finally, he does. Finally, he does. Now, would anybody think the master of the property would be acting unjustly, unfairly, harshly, if one day he finally decides to punish these wicked tenants? Well, everybody would understand it everybody would of course of, of course so jesus says what will the owner of the vineyard do to these wicked tenants and the question is of course rhetorical the leaders of israel knew exactly what the just punishment would be the religious leaders jesus is speaking to can't escape the logic but in doing so they condemn themselves and that's when jesus really drops the hammer on them it says he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others and they know this is about them. So they say, surely not. They cry out. And he said, what then is, that, is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him." In other words, judgment is coming. The chickens are coming home to roost. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes and the leadership of Israel at the time, they were great at pointing out all of the sins of others, but they could never see their own. But now they're being exposed by the owner of the vineyard. Isn't it easy to point out all the evil out there? Go get them, God. Sick them. Go get them. How long, O Lord, are you going to let all this evil... Continue in this world. Bring your justice down, O oh Lord. There's a great story in Second uh, in Samuel, I believe it's chapter 12, yeah. Uh, if, if you know anything about the king, King David, probably one of the things you know is that David sees a woman bathing. He's king, sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing. He knows she's married, As a matter of fact, married to a man fighting on his behalf, foreign country, but gets overwhelmed with lust and decides, I want her. Sends messengers to her to tell her he wants her. Not a whole lot a woman can do when the king back then says, I want you, like you've got to go. And so she goes and he sleeps with her. And then to cover it up later, has her husband killed in battle, her husband Uriah. And for a little while, it appears that David is going to get away with it. He takes Bathsheba to be his wife. She's become pregnant. But God God loved David too much to let him get away with it. And he sends someone to confront him, a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan doesn't just come at David saying, hey, wicked guy. Hey, jerk. Look what you did. No, no, no. He's a little more subtle than that. Pick up the story, 2 Samuel chapter 12. He begins by telling David a parable. It says, quote, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him. And with his children, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Oh, the righteous indignation of David at that moment, right? Toward the wicked. Oh, the indignation. How long, O Lord, will you allow such wickedness to go on? Oh, the righteous indignation. I feel it. All the bad guys out there. But then, right then. When we see the wickedness for all its heinousness, all we want is justice to fall down. Right then, when we're feeling most righteous, most self righteous in our cause, Nathan says to David, You are the man. What you did to Bathsheba and her husband is just like what that man did to that little lamb. And that's when we begin to see who the wicked really are that we want judgment for. We can read the parable before us today, looking at the wickedness of the tenants, looking for justice, not realizing the whole time that in it we are being forced also to see ourselves. When you come to the Lord pleading with him to do something about the wicked, remember at the same time to hold a mirror up to your face. Who, after all, are the wicked that have continually rejected the word of God's messengers time and time again and thought, word and deed, well, yeah, it may be them, but it's also me. Who is the wicked that has crucified the Son of God by his sin? Me. Who is the wicked that's deserving of the judgment of God? Me. And that's when we're left with with only one plea, as the master of the vineyard would come rightfully to judge us and condemn us and kill us, we can cry out for mercy. And to our amazement, in spite of our wickedness, God promises to all who repent and believe in his son that the judgment we deserve does not have to be faced. To our amazement, we find out, we hear, that in Christ, he has already faced that judgment for us. For in the very act of killing the master's son, the master was bringing about redemption and salvation for those very perpetrators, for you and for me. For the very people that reject and reject and reject, even through their rejection, God was accomplishing his plan of redemption for the world. So the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Romans 4.25 tells us that God in Christ therefore justifies the ungodly, that is, saves ungodly people from the judgment they deserve for their wickedness, because Christ indeed has taken it upon himself. So it is true. It is true. One day judgment will come. One day judgment is coming. But it is also true that though you are worthy of judgment, though the name wicked could rightly be attributed to every single one of us in here because of our thoughts, words, or deeds, you will not face judgment because you are in Christ. So, Let's wrap it up. How does God deal with the wicked? Well, for those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord, He makes them His children. So, instead of facing the punishment for your sin, if you haven't received Christ as Lord, come. He's yours for the taking. If he wanted to judge you, he wouldn't have gone through so much trouble to bleed and die for you. He wants to save you. And he's done everything necessary to make it happen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. You do not treat me as my sins deserve. Oh, God, if you did, I'd be be absolutely destroyed. I thank you, Lord, that you have, instead of uh, banishing us, you have drawn us near. We pray that you'd help us live lives of gratitude and thanksgiving. And so, Father, we pray with one voice the prayer that our Savior gave us, the Lord's prayer, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom in the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.